welcome. Everyone okay? Good. Glad to hear it. We're in uh, Exodus today, Exodus chapter 2. If you want to find it, we'll read it in a moment. Uh, just to add my welcome to everybody else, particularly uh, your first time with us, or maybe you've only been a few times. Uh, my name is Matt, married to Joe, who's uh, leading us in worship a few, a few minutes ago. We've got four daughters, and you've probably seen them open already. Uh, we moved here from the UK, from uh, a city called Brighton, which is on the south coast of England, uh, almost exactly three years ago, uh, we just moved with a few families, there was just three families and we uh, connected with some people that we already knew uh, here in the country and we started with about 12 adults and about the same number of kids meeting in our apartment in the east of the city in Vatacrasmir and we've been blessed to see over the last three years God begin to grow uh, this community into, into what you see around you now. Um, so we're really grateful for what God's done. Um, but our heart is, our passion is to be a blessing and to serve this city. Um, so I want to invite you, if you're new, not just to come and sit on a chair and disappear, but for you to be recruited really to come and join us. God's given us a great mission, He's called us to a great adventure, and I want to invite you to come and be part of that as well. If you want to know more about that, then please talk to me afterwards. If there are things that are unusual about how we worship here, what we do, please feel free to just ask us any questions. Um, you know, even our time of singing songs of worship might be a bit new to you. We believe in doctrine, in the Word of God, what the Bible says about the Son of God. But we believe at the same time in the experience that we can know God, that we can meet God. We believe in, in holiness, that we can live a life by His grace, worthy of the calling that God's given us. But at the same time, we believe in happiness, <laughs> that we can enjoy God. That, so you see people singing, maybe jumping around, they're not lunatics, they're just enjoying God. Okay, I hope that makes sense. If you want to find Exodus. Chapter 2. I'm going to read just two verses and then we're going to pray together. Those verses will appear in a moment. If not, I'll just read them to you. Fun, I'm just going to read them. Here we go. This is from the English Standard Version of the Bible. It says, During those Many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Let me pray. God, we, we thank you that we can come and be happy in our hearts. We can have joy when we think of, when we study, when we read about who you are, about what you 
don't believe in a religion of rules, of laws, of things that we have to do, barriers that we have to break down. We thank you that all of those barriers have been broken by you, Jesus. That because of what you've done for us, we're invited into this beautiful relationship with you to know the living God. And that's the message that we want to proclaim to our city, that they can find perfect liberty and freedom in you. It's also the message we want to proclaim to our own hearts, that we can find perfect liberty and freedom in you. That you came to set us free. We pray that uh, you even do that this morning for some of us. You speak richly and deeply to our hearts to come and bring freedom to our lives. Amen. Amen. The, the words did appear on the screen, that's good. We're, we're in the book of Exodus over these last few weeks and into the coming weeks and months. Um, and we're, we're studying the book of Exodus. We tend to, to, to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, we believe that's what the church should do. Really. What else do we do? Um, but we're particularly in Exodus because Exodus tells us a wonderful story. It tells us a story about what God did through Moses with the people of Israel. But it also invites us to come and be part of that story. It's a story not only about what God did several thousand years ago, but it's a story about what God has done for us and what he wants to invite you to be, to be part of. And I want to start by, by doing a bit of art history. Is that right? It's a bit of There we go. This, anyone know what this is? Joe knows because we went to the, we went to the, the exhibit on Monday. This is, a, this is an etching by Rembrandt. I'm sure you guys have heard of Rembrandt. We went to the Rembrandt house, which is the house where he lived for a number of years, and there's a museum there earlier this week. And when Rembrandt was alive, he was more famous for his etchings than his paintings. Obviously now it's the other way around. And an etching is where on a piece of, I think it's copper, um, you, with a various different tools, you can kind of indent markings into the copper and then you, you put it through a printing press, you smuggle it within, put it through a printing press and you get a picture that comes out of it. But the difference between an etching and a painting is obviously with a painting, if, once you've done the painting, if you want to amend it or change it, you can, but you just have to paint over what was there before what was there before it disappears. Whereas with an etching, if you want to change it, you, you just scribble on it again, and then you put it through the pressing and again. So it means with Rembrandt's works, you've got, you've got a number of different stages, versions of it that you can see. So this next slide that's going to appear, it's the same etching done on the same piece of copper, but this is several stages later on. Um, and does anyone know what this is? It's like an exam, isn't it? It's a test. You're all failing right now, by the way. This is an etching of, this is Christ. This is Jesus brought out by, this is Jesus brought out by Pilate, who was the, the, the governor of, of uh, Jerusalem and Judea at the time, the Roman government. And he brought Jesus out before the people. It's a story you can read about uh, in the Gospels, in Matthew 27 in particular. And you'll notice in the first one, there's also people here. And then in the second one, Rembrandt removed all the people in the front of the image. And Rembrandt did that because it's a, an art technique that you use to, 
to draw, draw you as the viewer into the picture, to draw you into the story. Rather than you just observing this crowd of people, he's, he's giving a message to us. He's saying, you're part of that crowd. You're part of that audience. So when Jesus was led out to this crowd of people, and a week before that, they'd been Palm Sunday, and they'd celebrated, they'd worked with Jesus in the city, and a week later, they're in this crowd, and they, they're chanting, crucified, crucified, the crowd turned against him. And Rembrandt's saying to us, you're part of the story. We can think that maybe we would have reacted differently than we were there, that we can somehow, over the course of history, we can stand in judgment. And Rembrandt says to us, no, we would have done the same. And that's kind of what I'm saying about why we're in the book of Exodus, because we're inviting you the same way Rembrandt invites us in his painting. We're inviting all of you to come into the story, to realize that we might like to read the story of Moses in Exodus, and think, yeah, I could be a bit like Moses. When actually, we're a lot more like the Hebrews, the Israelites. So when we read in these few verses, just two verses we're looking at today, or three verses, when we read about the Israelites moaning, crying, groaning, it's all about us. And we're going to look at what that means for us this morning. So we're going to talk about our slave master, a cry for help, and how God hears, God remembers, and God knows. God knows. So what's happened in this story to bring you up today? Um, this, these few verses, they kind of, uh, they bring us to the end of the first part of Exodus. So in the first two chapters, it tells the story of how, first of all, Joseph uh, had, had brought the people of Israel, just a few families that were at that time were the people of Israel, the Hebrews, the sons of Jacob and their families, had brought them into Egypt when Joseph was, uh, was kind of, sort of like the prime minister there. And it connects us with the story of Genesis, which we just finished the previous book of the Bible. And it tells how Joseph and his brothers had died. And what was a few families became a nation. But this nation of people went from helping to govern Egypt to suddenly becoming slaves, to being oppressed. And Genesis and Exodus chapter 1, and Exodus, some of Exodus chapter 2, tells a story of what really could be described as genocide. Where the, the Hebrews have been severely, brutally oppressed. Where Pharaoh commands that the sons of the war are murdered and killed. And that's how we pick up the story of Moses. Moses' mother puts him in a basket. She's been trying to protect him for three months. She's aware that he's going too big now. The people are discovering that he's going to get murdered. So she puts him in a basket and sends him off. And Exodus 2 tells the story of his rescue. Tells the story of what happens next with Moses, how he ends up uh, uh, confronting uh, one of these slave masters and killing him, which Jericho talks about next week, and how Moses ends up leaving Egypt, going away, getting married. And then here, in these last few verses, we pick up the story, and it's probably maybe 40 or so years later. That's what Acts 7 seems to indicate to us. So we pick up the story 40 years later, and yet for the Hebrews, this people there, as far as we can tell, they're in the same situation. They're moaning, they're crying out because of the slavery, because of the oppression that they're under. And the thing is, as I said, we can 
feel part of this story. Jesus said this in, in John 8. Since Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see, each of us, if we're not careful, we can end up giving ourselves over to our own slave masters tell us where to go, what to do, what to think, how to respond, how to act. I was reading a story in a newspaper this week of a rehab clinic that was opened to, to invite people in who were addicted to the internet, which sounds bizarre, sounds crazy. But they've got uh, people in there, many people probably around our age, so addicted to all sorts of different sides of the internet. To internet gaming, to pornography, just to social media. And some of these, there's just one story of a guy who his, his dad had to physically go into his house and drag him out and take him to the Green Mountain because he's locked away in his room 50 hours a day, just constantly on devices, constantly. Tells a story of another guy who's, who's made himself homeless. He was so addicted that he got sacked from his job and he ended up living in his car, driving around. He blacked out the windows and he could drive into a car park and just sit all day playing computer games on his tablet. His life just wasting away. <laughs> and we can, we can think, goodness, how could that happen to anybody? But we can, I'm sure we all know stories, times, seasons of our life, maybe even right now, where you know that. You've, you kind of feel a bit out of control. But something else is controlling you now. For all these guys, they're really weak now because that was the only way to save them. Because their life was out of control. They, they wanted to stop, but they just didn't know how. And all of us can get caught in those cycles of knowing that we just want to stop. But actually, what, this, what Jesus said is true. That we've sinned. We've, we've done the thing that we don't want to do. We've done the thing that we know we should do, that we know that, that God hasn't created us to do, and we forget. We've been brought under this slave master. The same as the people that are in this story, the Hebrews, Israelites. There's a slave boss who's telling us where to go, what to do. And I guess the question is how, how can we? How can we be free, or maybe how can we not be free? Because the answer of how to not be free is, I'm sure you've also experienced this too, is just to try a bit harder. <laughs> Unless you've been caught in that cycle where you know that you just need to stop, so you just try. Maybe you've even come to church and you felt inspired to go away and change, and you just try a bit harder. Just kind of grit your teeth and press through. And it works for a season, which could be a few hours, a few days, a few weeks. But sooner or later, we tend to, to end up falling back into the same habits, the same behaviour. If all we're trying to do is to try harder, because we can't set ourselves free. <laughs> I remember once in our last church in Brighton, uh, after the service, a bit like we do here, at the end of the service, we have a team of people that will 
Can't we pray for you? Because everything in your life you've prayed for. And I was part of this prayer team. This is maybe 10 years or so ago, five years ago, in the past. And this lady came forward to me and her mother and to pray for her. And uh, we said, well, What would you like to pray for? And she said, I'd like to pray for my teeth. And we said, Okay, what's, what's wrong with your teeth? What can we help you? And she said, I've been doing my own dentistry. She'd been taking a knife to her own teeth. Um, now, in that moment, if she's got any wisdom, the first thing you say is, not oh, bless her, Lord, but go and see a dentist. Okay. <laughs> Which is what we did, and then we prayed for her. But the thing is, you can, you can think, again, we can kind of stand in judgment and think, what a crazy lady, how would you do that to yourself? But in some ways, we all do the same. Because we see issues in our life that we know are wrong and we know we need fixing. And what really needs to happen is kind of a heart surgery needs to take place. But rather than inviting Jesus to come and do that, we, we try and do it ourselves. We get out, we scout on ourselves. We try and fix ourselves. It doesn't go so well. It's like a lady trying to sweat her own teeth. We can laugh, but we're just the same. We try and fix ourselves when we really don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. But that's so often what, what we find ourselves doing, what we get caught doing. And maybe that's the question you, you, I could ask you is, what is it that you, you can't stop doing? What's the pattern that you can keep coming back to? What's the story that your Facebook page doesn't tell? The pictures that Instagram doesn't illustrate for you? What's the story of your life that maybe you never told anyone? It's hidden away. But... <laughs> The wonderful thing is, is as these people of Israel did, is that we can, we can cry for help. You see, it, in this desperate situation, the Hebrews have been brutally oppressed, and you get this moment where they, just, they, they cry out, they just groaned, they just groaned out because of their slavery. They cried out for help. It was a cry of rescue. Which in some ways is... It's a beautiful one to pray, actually. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Maybe you've never read those verses like that. What they're doing is, is they're praying. They're just praying to God. And we think, oh, prayers, maybe that's a ritualistic thing. Maybe that's you know, something we need to read out a piece of liturgy. Maybe that's something we need to do in a really formal way. To, to sit down and be quiet and we can pray. Sometimes praying can be just a cry for help. Just to cry. In Psalm 130 it says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. May your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. In Romans 8 it says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not, we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
if you've ever been in that place where you don't even know what to pray. And that's okay. You can, you can just cry for help. You can literally, that's, that's a wonderfully biblical prayer, just to pray help. That's okay. As long as God would, as long as to God, you can just ask for help. Especially sometimes, maybe it's the best way to pray. The uh, writer J.I. Packer, he says, the prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but humble acknowledgement of our helplessness and dependence. <laughs> when we come to God in, in prayer, what we're saying to God is, as Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done, your kingdom come. I've trusted you. I can't do this myself. I need you. That's really the heart, so the center of the prayer is coming to Jesus, bringing out life as an offering, but worship to him, saying, have your way. Your will be done, your kingdom come. And sometimes prayer can just be as simple as that. My, my granddad, his, uh, his wife, my granny, my grandma, she died before I was born, uh, about a year or so uh, after my mum was married. I never met her. And uh, he, he was a Baptist minister in England. Um, and he said, for, he, so he had to carry on, even though his wife had died, to carry on uh, leading his church, preaching on Sundays. And he said he, he, for months, months and months and months, he didn't know how to pray. Like, how can you come to God that's happened? And he, the, the grief he felt was, was overwhelming. So every time he would pray, he would cry. Because how does he pray when that's happened? And he was in a similar situation to the Hebrews. How do you pray when the oppression, the pain is that bitter? Beautiful. He was. Uh, excuse me if I cry also, but uh, <laughs> never happened. And uh, he was. He, he, he came to. He was reminded that actually one of the things that Jesus, the reason Jesus loves now is, is he prays for us. He was reminded of this verse from Romans that the Spirit intercedes for us. So, the, the one thing he learned how to pray is he can pray, Jesus, pray for me. <laughs> Jesus, pray for me. Help. And he prayed that for, for months and <laughs> months and months. Just trusting God. And the thing is this, there's no better way to pray in that scenario. We sometimes feel like our prayers need to be long, need to be full of big words that we don't even understand. See, because your, your, this cry that the people of God let out, this cry that maybe you need to let out, actually you've got to see it as part of it is even it's the mercy of God working out in your life. <laughs> when, when you come to that moment of just utter helplessness and think, oh, all I have, I don't need, nothing else is going to work, I just need you, Jesus. 
the fact that you've come to that place, that's the grace of God, the mercy of God that's lived here. That's something to be thankful for. That's something to rejoice in. God's taken me to this horrible place. But what a beautiful place. Because if, if you feel that you can carry your sin, if you feel you've got it under control, if you feel you can handle it, then, then that's what you'll, you'll do. You'll keep carrying it. You'll keep carrying the weight of it. The crushing pain of it, you'll keep carrying it. As if you, if you recognize, oh, I can't. I can't. And that's when, that's when God arrives to help you. When we submit our lives to trust Him for all of it. See, because if we carry on with those verses that Jesus said earlier, we looked at him, John 8. It actually goes on to say that when he's talking about sin making us slaves, the next verse says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son, he's talking about himself, Jesus, remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's it. It doesn't say if you work really hard, you can be free. If you just try, you can be free. It says if Jesus sets you free, you can be free. Now, <laughs> I guess there might be one question buzzing around your head. You might think, well, I've, I've tried that. I've prayed that prayer. I've got to that place of desperation and nothing seems to have happened. Well, we've got to be aware that sometimes the, the, the turning points in our lives don't necessarily feel like a turning point. Because what we see in this passage is that the people have gone groaning and crying for help. And it says that God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. But it doesn't say that everything will need to be changed. In fact, we'll go into the next few chapters, we'll see that things don't need to be changed. They do, but not straight away. See, because we would love it if God was just a God of knocking strikes. But we think we, we pray and God fixes and power, problem solved. Being a Christian would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? God, just take out that person, poof, and God, just. So it was a dog. One of our neighbors had left a dog in their garden. And uh, out the back of our house is on this inner kind of courtyard here. And the dog's barking was reverberating around this whole massive courtyard. All evening to about half eleven at night. I put earplugs in and I could still hear the dog. And I was praying for one house. Just like smite that dog. And do you know what happened after I prayed? It's got rocked. True. Half eleven it just stopped. Now I presume the owner came home and let it in, but I don't know. But you see that God is, is often a lot of process. He takes us on a, on a journey with him, helping us to learn how to trust him. Little by little, transforming us more and more into his likeness. Sometimes we go through seasons where nothing seems to happen at all. Sometimes you get decades when you think nothing's happening. And then we go back and we, we can suddenly have an overview of our lives and think, oh, 
Look what God did. It was amazing. Over all these times, because I had so much in my life that it didn't feel like it at the time. But little by little, God's changing us. See, because what happens is we get this. What's happening here is we have reached the turning point. Because as I said, he says, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. When a bit of the Bible repeats God four times, when it uses his active verbs, God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew, we know that something's, something's about to happen. And the wonderful thing is that God hears you. God hears you. He does. He hears you. All of your prayers, he hears them. We're talking about tears and crying earlier, it says in Psalm 55 that God keeps our tears in the bottle. I mean, that literally means there's a bottle of heaven when you get there and there's all your tears kind of swell up. You know, some of you might have a bath, some of you have one might it look better. It's not like that, but it's literally just saying that God sees all of them. God's aware of your tears. Because Christianity is not just a crutch. It's not just a nice placebo that kind of keeps us happy. It's not like if, if I'm on the tram in the city and I hear a, a baby in a pram crying, I hear it and I may think a number of things. I might think, oh, poor baby. Or I might think, you know, just leave me alone, be quiet, and I want my peace. But I don't do anything, I just hear and observe. When it says God heard, that's in a very different way. That's the final that runs into the lonely building and he hears their cries to help. It's the nurse on the ward who gives the patient and runs to go and serve them. When God hears, it's not perhaps the same as how we might respond. So you can, you can tell God your story. You can lay it all out. You can tell him what's going on. Your worries, your fears, your complaints. It says in Psalm 142, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Psalm 55, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan. And he hears my voice. Isn't that great? You just come to God and moan. Just be grumpy. God is. God is. I was telling some people earlier this week, there were times when I was really cross. I felt the thing I wanted to do in life, God had stopped me from doing it. I was angry. We were living in Brighton, England at the time. Brighton has a beach, which isn't really a beach, it's just full of pebbles. And I went like stone. I went down to the beach. It was late at night and I was trying to pray. I was really cross. So I was picking up these stones and I was flinging them into the sea. Just shouting to God. It's literally what I do, shouting. And uh, unfortunately, there weren't any people around on the beach. Just crazy, man, shouting at the sea. That's what I'm doing. Flinging these stones. So, what happened is I pulled a muscle in my shoulder. Because <laughs> 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 I got literally stopped me from doing it. And I was like, well, I'm not having it. So, I just picked my muscle up using my left hand. So, I kind of, like a velociraptor trying to throw it. <laughs> and I looked ridiculous. And I looked so stupid that I just began to laugh at myself. Like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> it's such a plonker. And it's God sort of broke something in me. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it was just the mercy of God to pull a muscle to my shoulder. He was just speaking to me, drawing me back to him. And we can, we can pray like that. We can cry and weep, or you can just moan and complain. God hears. God hears. And then goes on to say that God remembers, that God will remember. It says, God heard their groaning. 
And God remembered, what does he remember? Does he remember your past behavior? Is that what he does with the, the Hebrews in your eyes? As they cried out and remembered, as you look back on, on their story and say, oh, they did a few good things, so therefore I'll do something. You know, he had that week a couple months ago where he was really on top four. Yeah, he did well that week, therefore I'm going to bless him. And so God remembered his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembered his covenant. His covenant. Now, what that means is, is that a covenant is it's, it's God's love relationship commitment with his people. It's his eternal promise that he will be their God and they will be his people. See, because in Genesis 15, where God has come to Abraham and given him his, his promises, come part of it is it says the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain the offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. He's talking about what happens to the Hebrews. And there'll be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So even in the covenant God's made with Abraham, he's made this commitment, this promise that he's going to lead them out. And the Hebrews is like they may have completely forgotten this. And that's, that's how a covenant works. It's a little bit like if, if you sign a contract, most of us at some point in life will sign a contract. Whether it's to rent an apartment, or when you start a new job, you sign, you commit to certain things, normally for a certain amount of time, or do these certain things. Um, the thing is, the covenant's a little bit like that. You know, when you get married, you make some promises to one another, that's the covenant. But the thing is, the covenant we make with God, the covenant that the Hebrews made with God, is that they, 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 they do it. <laughs> we do it. We let God there. We fail, we make mistakes. But with the contracts, your contract says that you shouldn't burn down your apartment, and you burn down your apartment, you don't have an apartment anymore. You know, if your contract says, do you not strike down that dog, if you strike down the dog, then you're in trouble. But we can, we can let God, we can break the government of God, but he, he doesn't let it be broken. God keeps it. It's much more loving and intimate than just a written contract. God's made this eternal, everlasting commitment to his people. Just as he remembered his covenant, he remembered the commitment that he had made to him, and he follows through on it. See, because God, God doesn't remember our sins, but his faithfulness. You know, how do we remember someone? Maybe someone's come to you, someone's let you down. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. Maybe at work, someone wants to do something and they do it. And then they come back to you, maybe if you're not safe for another request. Maybe they come asking you to do something. You think, I'm not going to do anything for you, you let me down. I don't know that. People say, oh, man, I can do this for you. No, 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 you blew it. Tough. God doesn't treat us like that. We let God down, we let God down, we let God down. But we can come to Him and He remembers His government. He remembers His faithfulness. We can always trust in the character of God, who He is. See, the thing is, you may change, you will change. God doesn't change. You may falter and slide, let people down, let yourself down. God won't let you down. It says in, in verse 25, 
the final verse here, it says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew. There's an incredible intimacy of God's knowledge, of God's knowing of us. Because this phrase, God knew, it's, it's a very intimate phrase. You see, even that phrase, new, it's, it's actually used in the Bible to talk about sexual intimacy. It says that Adam knew Eve. It's not like a kind of a bit of tongue-in-the-cheek sort of way of saying it. It's not like the Bible is just too prudish to talk about sex. It's not going to mention it, so it just wraps up in weird language that Adam knew Eve. What it's saying is there's a wonderful depth and intimacy to that language, to that promise. See, because it's talking about something that even sex itself is supposed to represent. You know, that our culture around us says, well, sex is just, it's just a physical act. This is just you, you being happy. You know, maybe you might make someone else happy, but just go and enjoy yourself. Stop Tinder or whatever, think through, oh, yeah, I might be happy. Yeah, just a physical thing, doesn't matter. I'll just do it and then move on to the next person, move on to the next person. That's how our society has been trained to think. Maybe how we've been trained to think. Sex is something to keep us happy, to amuse us. But it's not. It's not just a physical act. It affects your soul. It affects you deep within. That's why the Bible talks about sex being part, should be part of a marriage relationship. Because the physical act gives you this union, this bond together. You know each other in a rich and intimate way, in a deep way. It's not something to be messing around with. I remember working with a, 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 a colleague who, who wasn't a believer years ago. He was telling me a story of how he was walking down the street, and on the other side of the street, he saw an old girlfriend that he hadn't seen for a year or so. And he said, I didn't, I didn't love her anymore, not like in a any feeling of love. He said, I've never even thought about it. He said, when I saw her, he said, I had this horrible pain in my stomach. He said, I didn't know what it was, but I just felt this, this aching, this pain. I felt really upset. He said, I don't know why. And I said, well, I don't know why. It's because when you have sex, this union takes place. This intimate knowing of one another. And then when you break that, there's a pain there. There's an anguish. See, but God's knowledge of us, God, we say God knew, that's so rich and intimate. It's not like God knew, it's read in the textbook. God knew. There's an intent with it. God knew when he promised he's going to act. When God knows something, it means he's going to act, he's going to move, he's going to move with power to affect change. You see, because God has acted decisively to rescue us, to rescue you. If you're here and you're believing in Jesus, God's worked decisively to rescue you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, then you can receive that today. You can come to open and know you coming to rescue you. Let me just finish by reading this beautiful psalm to you. This is Psalm 22. The first five verses of it, the whole song, I mean, but we've only got time for this. It says, My God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted in you to them. It's talking about when the Hebrews is delivered. To you they cried and they were rescued. This is talking about Exodus 2, which we just didn't read. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they were trusted. In you they trusted. And they were not put to shame. <laughs> that psalm, on one hand, is a pretty good way to cry, to pray what we've been telling about. Christ is on, know and trust that he will rescue you. But also, maybe if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll know that that's the first line of it is what Jesus Christ was across. That Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Jesus prayer. You see, because in, in, in Jesus Christ from the cross, that's God's definitive decisive, once and for all answer for all of our cries. You can, you can read that cry of Jesus and know that he will answer all of your cries because Jesus died for us. In Jesus' death, there's a once and for all moment where God commits to remember his covenant, invites us into this new covenant with us. This relationship with him. And we can come and we we can come now and know that we've been rescued for the one huge issue in our life that we don't know God. We've been rescued into a relationship with him to be his people. But he's rescued us as well to, to fix us, to keep on changing us, to keep on working in our lives and in our hearts. He's rescued us so that we can now come into his presence, that we can cry out to him, that we can pray, even in the darkest, most difficult struggles in our life. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can come right to his presence. We can come and talk with him. We can cry, we can run, we can laugh. We can read the word, we can pray. Because of what Jesus has done for us now, we can know him. Can we pray? And then Joe can lead us in a song.